What we see here in Ezra 10 is, simply put, revival, which is something that has been woven into this book in its entirety and has been kind of building up for now 10 chapters. We see here that the people who have returned to the land physically, who have laid the foundation and built the altar for their temple and begun again to have sacrifices, the people who have spent much of their time going in worship to the temple are now at a breaking point, a crossroads, and revival proper is about to break out. It's not going to be one night of prayer and transcendence like a scheduled revival. Come to our revival Wednesday at 7. But they say to one another, this is not going to be a day or two. This is going to be a broad and prolonged process. We see first a spontaneous time of confession and repentance at the beginning of the chapter. And then we see that, that this spreads to the entire house of Israel and becomes a mandatory public meeting gathering together. And we're going to look at both of those things simultaneously as we see what are the elements of revival that we find here in Ezra chapter 10 as this book draws to a close. It begins with Ezra himself who is a minister, who is a priest in Israel. He is now newly aware of the sins of the people that have been happening right under his nose. And he is, quote, confessing and weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God. And before long, a huge crowd joins him in that. Men, women, and children coming alongside this priest and all weeping all sorrowful for their sins. But for it to go out further yet, there has to be a call that goes out. And we see Ezra gathering the people together. And what happens in verses 10 and 11 at the beginning of this mandatory meeting is that Ezra confronts the people with their sin. Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, you have broken faith and married foreign women and so increased the guilt of Israel. And then you need to make confession to the Lord. You see, before confession comes this confrontation. Now, I'm going to do, I, I tried to control myself, but I'm going to go nuts with this old preacher conceit of everything starting with the same letter, and I do apologize. I don't know if it's even going to make it easier to remember or if the words are going to be so similar that it's going to make you really pay attention and focus, but either way, uh, just... <laughs> Bear with me. But the first element we see here is confrontation. It wasn't needed at this, this big spontaneous meeting, but it was needed with the people more broadly. And, you know, as we said last time, the sin here was not marrying outside of their race. It was marrying outside of grace, marrying outside of their faith, thus breaking the covenant God had made with them. Notice that the punishment for those who will not repent is to be put out of the covenant people, to be excommunicated. This is a religious infraction. And we talked last time about how there actually were many different ways in which uh, foreign women from nations that were uh, idolatrous at large and, and who were uh, even very much against the God of Israel could join and become part of Israel. But that obviously had not happened here. This is a religious purity thing. It has to do with the old covenant law. It's not some weird racial purity thing. If you ever hear anyone preaching from this text or any text, that sort of thing, get up and leave. Maybe pants them on the way out. I don't know. Yeah, it's on you. You can't, you can't point back to me, though. 
I'm going to clip that out before we put it on the internet. So step one here is confrontation. The sin has been broad. They've immediately started doing, or I mean, in the course of decades, but over the course of history, pretty much immediately started doing what had led them into exile to begin with, which was mixing in with all the nations around them and saying, well, maybe a little of our God, a little of your God, we'll just kind of blend these things together and it will sort of be beautiful. We see that God does not see it that way. They are called to be a peculiar people. The word holy means separate. They're to separate themselves from the idolatry of the nations and be for the world a picture of holiness and the holiness of this God. So step one, confrontation. That is followed immediately, in this case, by conviction. And again, at the, that first gathering, the kind of uh, spontaneous gathering, conviction was already present. We see it in verse 1. Well, Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down. A very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. Now recognize, repentance and conviction are not the same thing. Conviction has to come first before true repentance. This is the work of the Spirit. If you're keeping track and writing things down, which is always a good idea, confrontation, confronting one's sins, followed by or accompanied by conviction. Conviction, in a theological sense, is not just some heavy weight of guilt on people. That's often what people think. And that's understandable because the word conviction in a legal sense means you're found guilty of a crime and now you've got to pay the price. And so we say the Spirit's convicting me and it just means that I feel awful and terrible and sometimes that is part of it. But at its core, conviction in the Scriptures, conviction in the, in the Christian faith is a God-giving God-given clarity, the ability to see certain things clearly. A good picture of this, perhaps the best picture of this in the scriptures, is St. Paul. When he was persecuting the church, he was turned against Jesus. He was on his way to Damascus to do some more church persecuting, and Christ himself knocked him down onto the ground, laid him low, struck him blind, and then declared him not blind. And the, the scales, literal scales, fell from his eyes. And suddenly, he came to see who Jesus truly is. But also, at the same time, he sees himself and his sin for what they truly are. And only then could he truly repent of those sins. Conviction is a vital part of the entire Christian life. Though It's not just something that happens at the beginning, like Paul was convicted on the road to Damascus and said, oh, well, that didn't feel good. I'm glad that's over. No, it's something not only that continually happens, but that we as Christians should be continually, daily praying for. It's been a while since I walked you through real basic uh, theology of salvation, which is called soteriology. I'm going to give you some, some 50-cent words, but don't worry about knowing the words or not at the moment if they're a struggle for you. I want to talk about salvation real quick in three tenses, in, in three terms. When we come to faith, when we come face to face with our Savior and we say, I have nothing but sin and throw ourselves at the mercy of our God at the foot of the cross and we are declared righteous on the basis of that faith, 
When God says you are saved by grace through faith, not of your own works, that is called justification. I'm going I'm to go left to right for you guys. And that's coming face to face with the cross. So we come to the cross at the beginning of this journey we call the Christian life. At the very end of the journey, we are going to come face to face with the Lord Jesus when we die and see him in glory. And we will have everything that remains in us burned away that might not be in keeping with who God created us to be. Any of the old Adam, the old Eve, jealousy, lust, anger, all the rest will be burned away. But the rest of the Christian life, the vast majority of it, between our first encountering the cross and our coming face to face with the Lord Jesus at the end of our life, is called sanctification. And it is a slow slog down this road from the cross to the gates of glory. And it often looks like this. I don't know if any of you have experienced that. And it often looks like this. And yet, this is what we are called to do as Christians, to continue to keep our eyes on him and walk toward him. And a vital part of that is conviction. Yes, it certainly requires conviction at the very beginning of our faith to say, I see that I am hopeless without you. I see that I am sinful and you are holy. I see that you are good and gracious and you have provided for my, my uh, sinfulness and you have provided and paid for my debt. And yet conviction is a continual need. Without that, there, of course, there is no repentance. Without repentance, there's no saving faith. Without saving faith, there's no salvation. But our need for conviction does not end the, the moment we first come to faith in Christ. Moving along this way, we need moments of conviction, of renewed hatred for sin, where we've started to get a little buddy-buddy with it. Renewed passion to follow Jesus and worship him with our entire lives. A renewed desire to be led by the Spirit and more and more filled with the Spirit. This conviction is the primary ingredient in revival. Not just here, but study all of Scripture and all of church history, and you'll find that this is the secret ingredient. The thing that makes Coke taste like Coke. The thing that makes Kentucky Fried Chicken give you a stomach ache or whatever. This is the secret ingredient. Without it, you don't have revival. Now, sometimes this conviction is big, and showy and you couldn't miss it like here or like on the, the Pentecost Sunday in the New Testament in Acts chapter 5. More often it is a still small voice. Remember with Elijah when he's, he's going to meet with God on a mountaintop like Moses did, right? And that was a big one, thunder and fire and smoke. And he got to the mountaintop and there's thunder and there's fire and there's earthquakes, but God's not in any of those things. God comes to him in a whisper, and he convicts him. He rebukes him for thinking he's more important than he is, and he's the only guy who can get the job done, and then he restores him and says, you're still mine. I still love you. I still want to use you. You still have a place with me. But either way, if there's no real conviction, there's no real revival. And I say there's no real revival because there's two kinds of revivals out there. There is the contrived kind, which is very carefully curated and orchestrated and executed, where you put shills in the crowd so that when the altar call comes, you've got people start streaming forward and they're actually just plants 
This should make everyone uncomfortable, but for some reason it always doesn't. And, and as people come forward, then you've got the frenzy, the energy, the emotion, and everyone kind of gets caught up in it. They identify it as God, but ultimately it might be the same thing you'd feel at a political rally or in a mosh pit. Donna, you ever been in a mosh pit? Anybody else been in a mosh pit? It's very invigorating. I wouldn't do it anymore, but in the 90s, man, you could find me there all the time. There's a lot of energy. There's a lot of feeling. There's a lot of like, oh, wow, this is amazing. This is bigger than me. And yet, if there's no conviction, what is the point? The other kind is the true revival. And it comes from simple preaching of the gospel and a moving of God. It might be huge and showy again. It might be covered on the news. It might not even make anyone's radar. It might even just be one household where God is at work and there is great revival. I would take that over thousands of people in some well-planned and orchestrated event any day. Historically, this is men like Jonathan Edwards or John Wesley who get up and, and just plainly proclaim the good news leading to a deep sense of our sin, a clarity of that, of God's holiness, a clarity there, that's conviction, uh, seeing his grace and love for us at the cross in Christ. A true revival will only really go as high as the conviction goes deep. It's like a, a building. The taller it is, the deeper the foundation has to go down. And the deeper the conviction, the, the higher the, the heights of a revival, if it's a true revival. The thing is, there's, there's revival, and then there's revivalism. Again, you study the history of the church, and it becomes very clear what's what. The latter, revivalism, I think can perfectly be embodied in the 19th century charlatan Charles Finney, the greatest fake revivalist in history. Very wise, well, not wise, but very smart and clever and crafty man. He wasn't a Christian. He said, there's no, there's no miracle in conversion. There's no original sin. It wouldn't be right for God to charge us with Adam's sin. And it also wouldn't be right for God to ch charge Jesus with our sin. There's nothing about Christ's death that can actually take away our sin. In fact, his most popular sermon was called Sinners Bound to Change Their Own Hearts. And people came in droves to hear him. And it was called a revival, a great nationwide revival. This was part of it. And as he told people to, to change their own hearts, he had a checklist. You see, it wasn't a miracle. It was the proper application of means that got people to respond, to come up to the anxious bench. He invented what we would later call the altar call. Coming, come forward and put on the pressure. I've got all these means. I've got a checklist I'm going to go through. Then he had another checklist called the new measures. And these were a way to kind of audit the revival and see how well things are going. And they'd go back and tweak it and revisit it and go, okay, what if we tried this? How do people respond to that? Because it was all about me manipulating you, the preacher, getting you to do what he would have you do. He actually sent hype men ahead of him to cities he was going to visit. He, he had everything in enormous tents provided by P.T. Barnum of Barnum and Bailey Circus, the, the guy credited with saying there's a sucker born every minute and two to take him. Barnum and Finney maybe were the two to take them. I don't know. But they would get up and they would put on the pressure and turn up the heat. Confrontation without conviction. Contrast that with the first great awakening, the century before. Prompted by basic proclamation of God's justice and goodness, our sinfulness, the coming judgment 
followed by a, a joyous proclamation of God's grace and mercy in Jesus' death for us on the cross and a call to repent and believe. Or for those who had fallen away, a call to repent and return. And for those who were stagnant in their faith, a call to cry out to God, to repent of their prayerlessness and their complacency, their willingness to go on sinning that grace may increase, and to beg God to pull them out of that miry pit, wash them clean, cleanse them of all unrighteousness, set their feet on solid ground, put the sword back in their hand, and give them a shove along this road with their eyes fixed on Jesus once again. That's what revival looks like. And it didn't take a lot of dramatics. John, Jonathan Edwards would get up and read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God in a high-pitched nasal voice. There was, there was no hooting and hollering and jumping around. It was the gospel message itself that had the power. That first great awakening lasted for generations. The second great awakening that came after it, so-called, was famous for burning hot and fast and then burning out and leaving behind an area that was almost like a, a burned-over forest, impossible to plant in, impossible to, to, to bring the gospel. They were inoculated to it. And a lot of churches today, usually without realizing it, have inherited a lot of those new measures and that checklist. we got to be careful about this. That when we do certain things like dim the lights and bring in the emotional music quietly under the preacher or lots of whisper, whispery preaching or, or getting more and more and more amped up so you get more and more and more amped up. Now, I'm not critiquing any different style of preaching. They're all good provided they come from a new heart. It's just like good works. If the good works you do come out of a renewed heart, great. They glorify God. If they're your attempt... In Finney's words, to be a sinner changing your own heart, they're only going to lead you on a primrose path to hell. In the same way, emotion and preaching and worship is great if it comes out of a renewed heart, if it comes out of a work of God and conviction. But if it's an attempt to push start that locomotive and say, look, God, we're doing something exciting. Come down here and join us. It's destined to fail. This is how the, these very famous revivals over the ages have popped up, burned bright, and kind of disappeared. By the way, before we think we might be above anything like this, more emotional stories and pithy life advice and hilarious jokes than scriptural truth in order to make you feel something very deeply and, and walk out of here saying, I've encountered God even though there's been no conviction. Remember, there's a reason that most churches are shaped like big tents in America in the last couple hundred years, and not like a cross as they used to be in centuries before. There's a reason even for a lot of the basic liturgy, the order of service in a lot of American churches, and especially Baptist churches, we've got to make sure that we're not falling into that contrived revival mindset. Churches will, will double down on it again and again and again and say, I don't understand why it's not working. And the reason is because we have skipped the step of conviction. So many have asked me recently about this Asbury revival that happened last month. It was interesting that it coincided with our preaching through Ezra and looking at a revival happening in the scriptures. Usually people didn't actually really ask me about it. There'd be an article about it and someone would just tag me in a comment. Zach Bartles. And they'd be like, hi, I, I, that's me. But I didn't have any words of wisdom. I don't know what to tell you about it. Sounds exciting to me, but I don't know if it was the real thing or if it was contrived or, or if it was contrived and God used it anyway. 
I like to try to have this Gamaliel wisdom. You remember in the book of Acts, when the Sanhedrin gathered together, they said, what are we going to do about this Jesus movement? And Gamaliel said, listen, if this is not of God, it's going to just kind of fade away and people won't care about it. If it is of God, we don't want to stand in its way, do we? And that was his wisdom. And people were kind of in awe of it. It's a good one to try to hop on board and people can be in awe of you too. But I think we'll find out later whether or not this was a, a true revival where the conviction ran as deep as it seemed that the, the emotions ran high. Or was it more heat than light, more flash than bang, more theatrics than theophany? What we do know is that it was a legitimate revival here in Ezra 10. And it begins with weeping. That's a sign of conviction. That's not conviction itself. And again, that can be faked. I can make most of you cry. I really can. I mean, not by like pointing out your flaws or anything, but with, with a really masterfully told uh, story or, or by kind of walking you down the road, uh, the Romans road. Or I, I, I can do it somehow and get you to respond emotionally. But even if it's out of a desire for true revival, that shouldn't be the goal. Conviction, rather, is, again, that clarity. So it means, first, having a clarity of your own sins. Second, being convinced in your heart and mind that something is amiss. Having the scales fall off, seeing our lives for what they are from God's perspective. Now, I usually can see other people's sins, no problem. But when that clarity comes, I can see my own. And that would be what would lead to tears. And what is the main tool for accomplishing this, if not a clever checklist of different external measures? Well, Hebrews 4.12 tells us this, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God is like one of those magnifying mirrors I brought in the other day that, that men find so amusing. You go to a hotel and you're like, look how big my pores are, hilarious. And my wife will be like, no, I'm not looking into that thing. I don't want to know. And I'm like, it's hilarious. I can put my car keys in my pores. Or maybe it's like one of those x-ray machines or an MRI that shows us our heart. The word of God will show us with clarity when, when God's spirit is working where we have yet to take steps forward or where we have stagnated. We have turned aside. We have started going around in circles on this road from the cross to the face of Jesus. And so revival, it can't come just with preaching a cheap grace. Ain't it great that God loves us despite our sins? That can't bring revival. It's too comfortable. It's a pep rally. Rah, rah, we're great. Everything's good. Aren't you excited? I've seen how people get super amped up over sports. And in the last few years, I've even been doing it myself a bit, but only and exclusively with the Lansing Lugnuts. And I'm excited that the baseball season's about to start again. Even when they get promoted up to the Oakland A's, I'm like, all right, I'm done with you. But I, I, I get really excited. And here's the thing. When we go to a Lugnuts game, if the past few seasons are any indicator, we're going to spend the whole season vacillating between second to last and third to last in our division. Doesn't matter. I'm going to go nuts anyway. I'm going to come in horse on Sunday mornings. My son and I are going to high five. Forget reality. Who cares? It's exciting to root, root, root for the home team, get caught up with the crowd and cheer and feel some kind of buzz inside us. And yet when it comes to revival, you have to care about the reality more than the buzz. 
I have to say, okay, well, let's have a real look at the rankings. Let's have a real look at where we stand, the standings before God, and recognize that perhaps more emotionalism isn't what I need. More true conviction is. And of course, any revival missing that key ingredient, conviction, is not true revival. What we see next is confession. So we had confrontation, conviction, confession. And we see this in both of the uh, kind of episodes here in chapter 10. Shechaniah, the son of Jethiel, uh, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, we have broken faith with our God. That's confession. And then we see in verse 12, as all the people are gathered together, then all the assembly answer with a loud voice, we must do as you have said, it is true. It is, what is true? The thing he just told them, that you've all sinned. They say it is true. The word to confess in the Greek, homologeo, means to say the same as. In fact, the word confess in the English means to say with or to say the same as, to agree with. You might think that's an, an obvious thing. It's a no-brainer, right? Well, skip that step. But after the initial push forward at conversion, when we start to kind of lose that initial honeymoon burst with Jesus, after our justification, what we learn to do in time is often to justify our own sins and to stop agreeing with God that they are sinful and to stop admitting where we stand and where we fall, to justify our lack of progress, to justify our worldliness, to justify being in many ways indiscernible from the world around us. Not only in our, our conversation and our lifestyle, but in our thoughts, in our motivations, our desires. We lose momentum, and before long, what drives us is largely the same as what drives everyone around us, the rest of mankind who has no hope. In verse 6, we see the, the, deep, the, the depth here of, of this confession and conviction. Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehananan, the son of, oh wow, Eliashib. I know that one. Jehananan, the son of Eliashib, uh, where he spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. He went and personally by himself prayed and fasted before the Lord, a personal confession. And then when they gathered all the people together, there is a communal confession this, or corporate confession. Are you seeing all the C's? I mean, they're everywhere. Now, this is the same sort of thing we do on Communion Sunday. When we together say that prayer of confession, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done, by what we have left undone, and we list these many different categories in which we have sinned. I think it ought to probably be every Sunday that we do that in which we acknowledge together that we have sinned and someone stands up with the authority of Scripture, not the authority of their office, and declares that your sins are forgiven. That's the best words that we can hear when we know that they're true. But, but notice, when he stands up before them, Ezra's you have sinned is in the plural, the you. And there we have sinned is also in the plural. There can be revival in an individual's life and also communally in the life of a church. When Christians start getting serious about letting God work in their lives, not just personal reformation of, you know, well, this year I'm going to try to stop cussing and read my Bible every other day. But rather, I'm going to let the Holy Spirit shine a light into parts of my heart that are dark and dingy and dusty to chase out the cobwebs and expose those sins that need to be destroyed and burned away. To convict me 
so that I will confess and repent. And notice that they, they even agree that they deserve the punishment. They agree with that. They, they thank God that there is yet hope. And we, as those who confess our sins on this side of the cross, can thank God that punishment's already been paid by Jesus. And when we together confess that, that confession prayer, we have sinned against you in thought, word, and sin. We, we do acknowledge that we deserve eternal, present and eternal punishment. And then the very next words are, but for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us, renew us, forgive us, etc. That is the beauty of being in Christ. That is why reformation and revival should be natural for us, apart from the world, the flesh, and the devil dragging us back and spinning us around. Now, Jesus took those ultimate consequences, the eternal consequences off our shoulders, but there may be other consequences, and this will also accompany true revival. They pay a great price here. Those who are, admit their sin and turn away from it, it's a difficult thing that they do. And there will be real fruit of repentance when we've confessed our sin and turned away. I, the, the Ulster revival in the 1920s. Ship, shipyard workers began to be convicted of having stolen tools. And so many stolen tools were brought back that they had to begin building new sheds. And at some point, the owners of the shipyards said, we forgive you, just stop bringing them back. We don't have any more room for all of these tools that you are returning. If a revival only results in a lot of crying and carrying on, but bears no real fruit of repentance, it's not real revival. Read John the Baptist preaching at the beginning of the Gospels for that. He says, yeah, you came out here and you saw the guy in the freaky clothes eating bugs, but go back and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And that brings us to the last piece, repentance. And you're thinking, that doesn't start with C. Stay with me. Revival happens when we get clarity, conviction, and we confess that we actually see it, and then we repent. And in the Hebrew, that word is shuv. And it means to turn, turn back, or return. And that is often necessary as we walk this pilgrim road, this sanctification life. And for the, the blood-bought saint in need of revival, it is to return to that narrow way from whatever, whatever sidetrack we're on, whatever, whatever tent we've ducked into, to confess, I've been hanging out on the broad road, I've been trying to find satisfaction in wealth and physical gratification and social standing and building my own great name, like those men in the, the plain of Shinar who tried to build a, a tower to heaven for their own great name. And we ask God to do again what he did there, to confound our efforts in the wrong direction, to renew our hearts, rekindle the flame, reawaken our spirits. That's repentance. In his 95 Theses, Luther's very first and probably a summary of all the rest was when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Now, to make the alliteration work. I once heard a preacher from California who I listen to regularly preaching on this topic. He was alliterating like I am today with C's. And he said, conviction, confession, and cleaving. I thought, hold on, cleaving can mean two things, right? 
When Jesus was describing marriage, he said, a man and a woman will leave their father and mother and cleave to one another. Hold fast, never let go, hold tight. That's one kind of cleaving. But the other kinds are the kind you do with a cleaver. When you, you, know, you see on, on TV when somebody gets out a bunch of meat, or maybe you have a cleaver at home. I don't have one. But whack! And now suddenly you have cut off and separated something that was connected, something that was together. It is now separate. That's exactly what we see happening here. I think cleave in the sense of a cleaver to make a clean cut is a wonderful way to describe this. In verse 11, we see it described. We see, we will separate ourselves from the peoples of this land. We're going to separate ourselves. It's going to be hard because we've now intermarried with them and we've now kind of done what we did before and become one syncretistic group, but we will get out the cleaver and separate ourselves. It's a picture of cutting. This, this kind of clean cut is a powerful picture. They're literally divorcing their sin. It's a painful break. It's an extreme picture of what it looks like to repent, to cleave off your sin. Although Jesus cleaving off your hand or gouging out your eye is probably a little more extreme. We talked a bit last week about the temptation for the Christian to be unequally yoked. For a believer to fall into that trap of looking only with the outward eyes. And, and seeing the same things, looking for the same things that the godless would look for in a partner and a spouse and begin to justify it. I've seen it a hundred times as if good could come out of disobedience, as if the ends can justify the means, even if the means means throwing God's grace in his face and, and breaking his commandment openly, willingly, willfully. But there's the other definition of cleave. And when we're trying to cut off something that is so precious to us, as Jesus put it, be willing to cut off your hand or gouge out your eye, we need more than willpower. We need to be ready to hold fast to him, to cleave to him. And this is where revival must go next and where it must stay and where it must live and where it must not grow cold if it's not going to be a little bump of guilt, a momentary resolve that I'm going to make things better and, and do better, and an eventual and inevitable slide back into the same destructive patterns, we need to cleave from the sin and cleave to him. They weren't primarily breaking faith with these pagan wives when they followed through with this. They were primarily being faithful to a greater Faithfulness in a greater sense. Their love for God that overwhelms the attraction and the familiarity and the connections they've made and the comfort they felt pushed them forward. The love of Christ compels us, in the words of the apostle. We're coming up on halfway through Lent, and some people who gave some things up, which I don't know how many Baptists do that. I didn't this year. But some people who gave some things up are going, ah, oh, it's really hard just to do that by willpower. And i got to tell you, I think giving things up for Lent nine times out of ten is a fool's errand for most people. Now you tell us. I was going to tell you on Ash Wednesday, but a snowstorm. No, I told you. I told you at the beginning. Perhaps it would be much better for us to add something to our lives than try to just cut something out. To try to displace something from our lives by holding on to something we love all the more. By replacing a bad habit with time in scripture or meditating in prayer or meditating on Christ. 
But traditionally, Christians have given something up. And it makes sense because it answers to the old covenant uh, Passover. Leading up to Passover, they would go through the house and remove all the leaven. And in the same way, we look into ourselves and with the help of the Holy Spirit say, show me where I've got leaven yet, where I've got sin. And we're going we're gonna to pull it out together. But here's the thing to remember. The more we get into the word of God, that x-ray machine, the more we will be burning out all the leaven. The more we open ourselves up to the working of the Spirit in prayer and sanctification, the more we will be aware of, convicted of, cognizant of, and confessing all of our sin. And that leads to the final aspect of revival that we see here. Confidence. I wanted to say hope. I'm going to say hope. We see it in verse 2b, way, way at the beginning of the chapter. There's weeping. There's throwing ourselves down before the house of the Lord. There's all this fasting and praying. And they come together and say, we have broken faith with our God. But even now, there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Revival leads to hope and not just wishful thinking. God is just going to look the other way and forget about my sins because I'm so excited about him. But true hope rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing that my sins are as far from me as the east is from the west. Even before the cross, by many centuries, they saw that confession to a holy God when he is a covenant God does not mean he's going to say, oh, well, I'll put this in my hip pocket and use it against you later. No, even so, there is hope, they say. Godly sorrow leads to repentance, which leads to life, according to the Apostle Paul. The power to cleave off sin comes from the love we have for this loving God. Focusing on him is how we can cleave away that which is so precious to us, even if it's like cutting off your right hand or gouging out your right eye. This, this can be seen, I think, as well, because so often in the Old Testament, there's the picture of spiritual adultery with someone who is foolishly flirting with adultery. Maybe they've built up a real connection with someone outside of their marriage, someone who makes them feel good and gives them the old butterflies again. Sin can start to have that effect. Oh, I feel a little bit alive again in a way I had kind of forgotten about. And when that happens, most people won't be able to say to themselves, well, that person is all bad. No, you wouldn't have been attracted to them if they were. They make, they make you feel good, in the flesh anyway. You can't say, this person doesn't care about me. Ultimately, that's probably true, or they wouldn't be doing this. But no, they seem to care about you. And their presence is a comforting presence. Only when the love we have for Jesus dwarfs the affection that we have for our sin and the old flesh will we be able to follow through with divorcing that sin and cleaving it away. It's a return to our first love. Remember in Revelation 2 to the church in Ephesus when Jesus says, you have abandoned your first love. Repent and return to that first love. In fact, we might say that's a great picture of revival. God winning us back when we on this road have strayed away again and again and again. And we've gone off somewhere else and we've followed after other things and idols and made idols of everything in our lives. And he takes us back again and again and again. This happens throughout the Old Testament to the point that God assigns one of his prophets to live it out. Right? You've read the book of Hosea. He says, marry this woman, Gomer. She's a prostitute. And he's like, I don't know if I'm supposed to. No, you marry her. And every time she's unfaithful to him and she leaves him and he finds her with some other man, every time God commands him, take her back. Welcome her back. Accept her back. Forgive her. Love her. Bring her back into your home. That's how it is between me and you. 
is the message he has for Israel. And it would be easy for us to say, oh, that old covenant people, oh my goodness, they were so unfaithful, weren't they? Running around with all those Baals and Asherahs and, and false gods. But the fact is that walking this road from justification to glorification, walking on this road called sanctification, we will be made eventually into the unbroken, unfractured image of our Creator but as we walk that road again and again, we see the same story played out of spiritual adultery. We've strayed, we've strayed again, we've strayed again, and every time he welcomes us back, and every time is revival. Whether it's just you, or whether it's a household, or whether it is a church body, or a city, or whatever. In Deuteronomy 30, we read, I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses, therefore choose life that you and your offspring may live. You shall not turn aside from the word which I have given you to the right or to the left, and yet we turn aside again and again and choose death again and again. We stray, we repent, we turn back. That's revival. It's not very sexy. It's not going to get national headlines. That revival in your life or in the life of our church is probably not going to get its own Wikipedia entry like some revivals have, and yet that is true revival. And it starts with each person looking into his or her heart and opening it up to God, ripping down the blackout drapes that we've put up, tearing down the protective walls we've put up around sins or desires or grudges or other things that are precious to us, fears or whatever, saying, God, my house is wide open to you. Come through, shine your light and find the leaven and chase it out. Convict me, make me certain of my sin. Don't let me squirrel out of it or try to justify it as I've become so good at doing. Move me from conviction to confessing, saying the same as you, agreeing with you that my sin is sins, that I acknowledge it before you. And then to repentance, cleaving it off and cleaving to you. You can feel when re revival is needed in a church, can't you? When, when the, the flame is burning low, I have experienced it a number of times in my life, and I've experienced the, the moving of God and the fanning of the flame again and again as well. I think in many cases, COVID did this to a lot of congregations. Because what it did is it made everyone stop and ask an important question. What really is most important to me? What is valuable to me and what is not? When you stop doing everything... And then you start adding things back in. It's like when somebody says, I'm taking so many pills, despite my doctor's orders, I'm just going to stop all of them. And one at a time, I'll add them back. And I'll see which ones are helping me and which ones aren't and which ones are hurting me and which ones maybe I'll just take now and again as needed. These are the ones that have the side effects I don't like. These are the ones that are really important to me. You know, it could have been a great moment. And perhaps for some churches it was. But for many Christians... Many pastors I know, they've reported the same thing. As they reassessed, as they returned to some things and not to others, people found this might not be important as I thought it was. I'm learning to live without this Jesus stuff as much and certainly without gathering together with the saints as he commanded, without coming to the table for the bread and the cup. I'm starting to get a little bit less hot and a little more lukewarm. But if we're going to keep following him and calling ourselves by his name, we have to repent of any ho-hum, blasé approach to the God of the universe. To, to say, I'm not going to hold back and be halfway in. Lord, 
You said, if I'm not hot or cold, but lukewarm, you'll spit me out of your mouth. Make me hot or make me cold, one or the other. That's revival. And today, thank God, we're living under a new covenant in which God's grace has been demonstrated in the ultimate act of mercy and self-giving love, in which our sins have been overwhelmed by the power of his grace, in which believers who find themselves married to unbelievers, one comes to faith and the other doesn't, aren't commanded, send that spouse away, get divorced, but rather stick around and sanctify them and be an example and love them. Chip away then. We, we say to our, our Lord, chip away the footholds given to the devil. I've, I've made a lot of them. I've let him get a toe in there, and I've let him keep on pushing until there's, there's a good-looking step. It looks like one of those rock-climbing walls at a, a hip Christian camp, right? Chip them away, sand them down, polish them down until they're, they're so slick that the, the slippery hooves of the enemy could never make any progress in them. Work in me so that my heart, which is being made new, will desire and love to seek after your face, not my own carnal pleasure, your glory, not my own success or fame or whatever, your kingdom, not my wealth, your Sabbath rest, not a life of of sloth and laziness, where my default reaction, my knee-jerk reaction, Lord, when I sin, is not to just kind of wander off and say, well, I, I should take some time is not to try to justify it, to shy away from the throne of grace or to hunker down and cease making progress down the road of sanctification, but rather my immediate response is to fly to the cross and say with these men of Judah as they came before Ezra, you are right that we have sinned. We have broken faith with our God, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for an example of personal and corporate confession, conviction, repentance, and restoration. We pray, Lord, for revival in our land. We pray for revival in our town. We pray for revival in our church. And Lord, I pray for revival in the life of each and every person here and those who decided this morning not to come here and those who were providentially hindered from gathering with us. Lord, we pray for a time of revival when your your irresistible grace is poured out on many. Lord, we pray that where we may have become ho-hum and lukewarm and blasé about coming face-to-face in the word, in the bread, in the cup, in, in prayer and in praise with the God of the universe, that you would convict us, that you would knock us down and then pull the scales away from our eyes and give us that clarity so that we can be put back on the road of sanctification, that the flame can be fanned back to life. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.